This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're nearing the end of chapter 24. Jesus has been answering the disciples' question about the end times, and we've been allowed to listen in. It matters to us because, given all we see going on around us, we can easily worry about our future too. But the comfort Jesus gave his disciples, the future leaders of his church, is just as comforting to us. God has a redemption plan for his creation. It ends in judgment, but it's preceded with grace upon grace upon grace as he patiently offers us salvation. And once we're a redeemed child of God, nothing can separate us from his love. Let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. So follow along with me. We're going to be Matthew 24, verses 36 through 41. Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, and one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Last Sunday, we talked about the prophecy in the parable concerning this day. And the parable was the fig tree, you know, one of Jesus' favorite imageries to use. He said, when you see the leaves start to blossom, know that there's a change in season coming. And that will serve as a metaphor for you to learn also the signs of the times. Now, I am convinced that the church will not be here during that time. We will have been taken to heaven before in what is called the rapture. But then there will be some people here who will go through this. Remember that Jesus says there's a generation that will be here during that day, and we concluded that he was referring to the Jewish race that will be living during that time here, Messianic Jews, Jews that will come to faith in Christ, that will finally recognize the Messiah, and some of them will be witnesses for Christ, 144,000 of them, 12,000 from each tribe, but we won't be here. We will be watching everything from uh, heaven coming down with Christ here in touchdown finally, for the second coming of Christ, and we will rule with him. So we talked about the prophecy and the parable. We'll conclude today with the peril, because for people who will be living here during that time on the earth, will face many difficulties. Now, up until this point in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus spent a lot of time answering the second part of their question in verse 3. Let's go over that question again. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So sort of a threefold question that they asked. And Jesus spent a lot of time now telling them about the sign of his coming. But now Jesus finally addresses the timeline of that day. And he's very clear of the fact that even though we may know the general time, we will never know the hour, the exact hour and the exact day, he says. And I want to show you three aspects of that last day, the day of the Lord, of the peril of that last day. And the first one is shock, verse 36. Shock, because maybe you, you've experienced that shock like I did when I read this for the first time. Because Jesus is saying here that the angels of heaven don't know about this day. But wait a minute. Angels are going to be involved in the second coming of Christ. 
They were involved in the first coming of Christ. You will remember that. And Jesus himself says that at the end, there will be angels involved in the second coming as well. They will come and, and help him separate the sheep from the goat. But apparently, they don't know the hour. They have not been given that information. The Father did not disclose that to them. And that's fine. But even more shocking is the fact that Jesus said he doesn't know the day or the hour. Wait a minute. You say, I thought Jesus was omniscient. And you are correct. Jesus knows all things. But now Jesus tells them, I do not know that information. Which is, again, shocking if you know that Jesus is one with the Father and one with the Holy Spirit. He's not less than the Father. He's not less than the Holy Spirit. The Bible is very clear about the three persons of the Trinity. Jesus is not the Father. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Son. But all three members of the Trinity share the same essence as God. The same essence of Godhood. So Jesus is not less than the Father. In fact, if he ceased to be God, even for a second, he no longer qualifies to be the Savior of you and me. So it, the fact that he didn't know the hour of his return here does not mean he became less than divine. No, quite the opposite. He chose ignorance of that time in order to make a point. He simply volunteered to restrict his divine power in order to show us something. But before we get to that, listen to these examples that we have from the mouth of Jesus about his voluntary submission to the Father. And by the way, we need to understand how the Trinity operates here. There's always perfect harmony between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's never tension there. The tensions in our houses, in our relationships, we experience that, but not the perfect God three in one. Now listen to what Jesus says in John 8, verse 28. He says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak the things as the Father taught me. You say, I I'm a little more confused now, Pastor, because if Jesus is omniscient, how come He's learning anything? Well, listen to verse 38 of John 8. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. In John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one, which means they they're not completing each other. They're not... Jesus is not 50% and the Father is another 50% or 30%. No, He is fully God, but He's also fully man and will never cease to be fully human because His body is now in heaven and He will be there forever. Now, continue here, John 12, verse 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. So here He is talking about the fact that He's one with the Father and yet He submits to the authority of the Father voluntarily because there's perfect harmony in all three persons of the Trinity. And in John 14, verse 11, he says, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So he says over and over again that he is one with the Father. He is not anything less than divine. Consider something else. Jesus never ceased to be omnipotent either. You know what that means. It means he can do all things. Now, let me define that a little bit. When we say God can do all things, we need to clarify that God cannot lie, for example, and God cannot sin. So uh, God can do all things that are compatible with his nature. So Jesus is also omnipotent because he's one with the Father. But as a toddler, remember this, he had to depend on his earthly mother for food and shelter. He was fully human, and therefore he experienced the same limitations as you and I do. For example, the Bible says that, that he experienced hunger. And fatigue, yet he is fully God, fully man, united in one person. 
Consider this also. Jesus presumably learned the trade from his earthly father, his adopted father. Even though he is the creator of beauty, he's the creator of symmetry, creator of art, and he's the one who empowers everybody to work. Yet he had to learn his trade from his adopted father. Confused yet? Well, Paul clarifies everything for us here in Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, when he says this, Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does that mean, church? Does it mean that Jesus Christ ceased to be God? No, not for a moment. He emptied himself, meaning he put on humanity. And in the fact of he putting on humanity and living among us here, he voluntarily decided to not know the information. He submitted to the Father. The Father told him, I'm not going to give you that information. He's perfectly fine with that. Now, I believe that the Father he revealed that information to him afterwards, after the resurrection. Because at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says to the disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. But the point of that passage in Philippians 2, verse 5, which is known as the kenosis passage or the emptying passage, there's an imperative in there. There's a command. And it will help us understand why Jesus would do things like that and voluntarily restrict his divinity, his divine power. Paul says this in Philippians 2, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what that means, church, he's an example for us and the perfect example of submission to the Father. So the question then for us is, how do we submit to the Father? How do we obey God? How do we honor Him? We sing about wanting to love Him and honoring Him. How do we do that? We submit to Him, just like Jesus submitted to Him. So God lives in the past, present, and future, and therefore He knows all things. But in this particular case, Jesus chose to not have that information, presumably for a limited time, in order to show us that it's okay to not know information. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with not knowing information? You have to be. There's no other option. Now, there are many things I suspect God doesn't want you to know or God doesn't want me to know. For example, He has never given us an explanation for the Holocaust. There, there, we don't know why he would allow such a horrible thing to happen. We don't know why God allowed slavery. We don't know the reason why he allows tragedies in my life and in your life. And the problem is when we try to explain it. And the reality is we do not know. In fact, people will say, oh, I refuse to believe in God because he allows X, Y, and Z. But even believers don't know the reason why X and Z. We don't know why God does things. So we have to be okay with it. I don't know why God allowed tragedy in my life, and I experienced a few. And I don't know why God would allow tragedy in your life. But here's what we do know, and what we do know has been revealed to us. We need to know His attributes, and that should be enough for you and for me. Listen, the Lord is good, the Bible says. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. How about we know that? Psalm 34, verse 8. That's all we need to know. His loving kindness is everlasting. Psalms 136, verse 2. Even though I don't know the reason why I'm going through this crisis, self-imposed or not, I don't know why, but I know that His loving kindness is everlasting. I also know, according to Isaiah 30, verse 18, that the Lord longs to be gracious to you, the Bible says. Therefore, He waits on high to have compassion on you. He is a God of justice. He is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, Exodus 34, verse 6. We, we must know all of these things because that's the information that God has revealed to us. 
He is mighty to save, Isaiah 63, verse 1. He is eternal, Deuteronomy 32, verse 27. The God of all comforts, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. So even though I don't know why he would allow some things to happen in my life, I know that he is the God of all comforts. And I know that he longs to be compassionate toward you and me. And I take great comfort in the fact that he is a God with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, James 1, verse 17. Imagine the miserable existence that my life and yours would be if God kept changing his mind. So next time we're tempted to ask God and demand an explanation as to why you allow my spouse to die, why you allowed my son to get cancer, why didn't you allow me to lose my job, we don't know. What we do know is he is loving, he is good, he is sovereign, he longs to be compassionate to us, should be enough for us. Now, check this out. We will have... A lot more information when we get to heaven for a couple of reasons. We are told from Scripture that when we get to heaven, we will have a glorified mind, which means we will be able to understand many things that we don't understand now. And we will get to know God forever and ever and ever and ever. And we will never exhaust knowing God. Consider that. We will have the entirety of eternity, if that's even a concept. Okay, We will have eternity to know God We will never reach the point where we'll say, I know 100% there is to know about God. Because at the moment we say this, he is no longer infinite. So there's no such thing. You and I will know God forever and ever, and we will never stop learning about God. Consider this. We have a hard time understanding the boundaries of the created universe. And yet we know it's a created thing. Imagine knowing the one who created The vast universe, which we think is, or we have the impression, is infinite. It's not. There's a border of the universe. We just can't see it yet. So you see why no one should be scheduling the return of Christ? Only one person knows the exact moment of the second coming of Christ. And he has reasons for that classified information. I don't need to know why. So we don't know the exact date, but we must live our lives as if we are the generation who will see all of these things, you see? We are to live our lives with the expectation and great anticipation that we will soon see our Lord. That changes our perspective, doesn't it? It changes our perspective on sin. It changes our perspective on worrying. It changes our perspective on the anxiety of our hearts, knowing that our future is bright and it can happen at any moment. But let me talk to you about the next aspect of the timeline of the day of the Lord here. We talked about the shock of learning that Jesus claims to not know something here. How about the surprise in verses 37 through 39? And the reason I say surprise is because that's the reaction of the disciples. They would have been surprised about this because Jesus says the last day of history as we know it will bear many similarities with the last day of the pre-flood earth because he mentions the days of Noah. He accomplishes a few things by doing this. First of all, he is demonstrating that his word will never pass away. Look at verse 35 again when he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And we can understand that to mean the word of God. And he validated the book of Daniel a few verses ago by saying that is true prophecy. And now he validates the book of Genesis. So don't let anyone tell you that the book of Genesis is a myth. It's not. Jesus confirms that when he says, Matthew 19, verse 4, Have you not read that uh, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So he's validating the history of Adam and, and Eve. By the way, he's also validating the reality and the truth that there's only two genders. Now, even though life will be disrupted 
with all of these cataclysmic events of the end times, people of that generation will be living their lives normal. They'll be eating and drinking. He says there'll be marriages will take place, uh, perhaps to comfort one another. But he said, just like in the days of Noah, people didn't really pay much attention to the preaching of Noah. And by the way, Noah was a preacher. Did you know that? Peter says that. Second Peter 2 verse 5, Peter informs us that Noah was a, quote, preacher of righteousness, unquote. So he shared with others about the character of God. He would tell people, we don't know the exact content of his sermons, but he would tell people, listen, God is righteous because he's a preacher of righteousness. So he would say, God is going to send judgment on this earth. And people say, really? How's that judgment going to be? He would say, well, rain and the waters from below, the waters from above. He said, rain, what is that? There had never been, there had never rain on the earth, according to Genesis 2 verse 5. So people say, I don't know what you've been drinking, Noah. But we're not following you. And as far as we know, only his wife and three sons and daughters-in-law listened to the message. In fact, that's what the Bible says, so we know that for a fact. Genesis 7, we're told that God himself closed the door of the ark. And by the way, this was a, a global event. This was not a localized flood for a couple of reasons we know that. Number one, if this would have been a local event, it would have been much better for God to tell Noah, why build the ark? Just migrate. And number two, the Bible says that every mountain was covered. So for a period of time, the whole earth was covered in the floodwaters. And Jesus validates that story by saying, this is what happened during the days of Noah. Because the tragic part of that is that many people refused to come to faith in the true God, not because of a lack of information, because Noah preached to them, but because of a hardened heart. Now, guess who else God has commissioned to be preachers of righteousness, church? Who else? The, ah, I'm glad you're saying us, not you. You're saying you. God called you. He did, but he called you too. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been commissioned to make disciples of every nation, the Bible says. So your job and my job is to preach about the righteousness of God. How do we do that? We preach them Christ. We give them Jesus. In fact, like Paul says, we beg people on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, which gives us the idea of, you just say it once, you reason with people. You say, reconsider your rebellion, my friend. Where are you going to spend eternity if today is your last breath? Tragically, many people reject God today. We need to understand that they reject God not because of a lack of information, not because of a lack of faithful preaching, and not because of a lack of resources. They do it despite the abundance of all of these things. People today are ignorant about the nature of God and His attributes, not because of a lack of information, not because of a lack of, of uh, resources. They don't know His redemptive plan because of a hardened heart. And that's where the problem is, the heart of, of man. Now, that generation who will live in those days will have even fewer excuses to say, well, no, I didn't know that God was righteous. I didn't know that God was going to judge the world. They will have even fewer excuses because they will have 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, preaching the gospel to them according to the book of Revelation. They will have two miraculous witnesses witnessing to them, two prophets, and there will be an angel from heaven preaching the gospel to them. We learned all of that from the book of Revelation. So they will have no excuse to tell God, whoops, I didn't know about you. And sadly, just like the people before the flood, they will perish because of a hardened heart. Now let's talk about the third aspect of that day. I'm going to call this separation. So we talked about shock, surprise, and now separation, verses 40 through 41. Now before providing the application of everything that he's talking about here, he concludes the information part of his sermon 
here by describing a, the result of a particular type of judgment. Now, it's easy to confuse the judgments in the Bible, so don't get confused. People will survive all of these catastrophic events and they will inherit the kingdom. They will be alive at the time and they will go, they will march in right into the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom. Now, remember, you and I will be in the kingdom, but we will come with Jesus from the clouds. Now, these people will survive all of these events, and God will send his angels and separate the sheep from the goat and say, well, you go over here and you go over here. Now, here's some more details of the tribulation people of that time. These are the tribulation saints. They, they will survive all of this. They will not experience physical death. What a blessing. Isaiah 65, verse 20 says, No longer will there be an, an infant who lives but a few days. He's referring to that time. Or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. So what happens here, these people who will be separated from the goats, they will inherit the kingdom. These are the sheep, the metaphorical sheep. They will inherit the kingdom. They will have children. These children will be born with a sinful nature, just like you and I are born today. The difference is that Satan will be bound for a thousand years, according to what we'll see here in a moment. So he will not influence them, but they will need to learn, these second generation of kingdom people there, will need to learn about God's word. Now, some of them will rebel, and those are the people that Satan will appeal to at the end of the thousand years. Check this out, Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is what's going to happen at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ here. But let's rewind the tape back to verse 40 here of Matthew 24. The time before that day of the hour that we don't know here, when Jesus will come back and separate the sheep from the goat. He explains to his disciples that the people of that time, the tribulation people, who will fail to come to faith in Jesus Christ, will be sent to a different place than the, than the sheep. According to Matthew 25, verses 30 to 31. And that's what he means by saying there will be two people in the fields. One will be taken. One will be left. And this is what he means. In Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another. As the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he will say, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that is the purpose of that separation. Now, in our day, God does a different kind of separation. I hope you understand that. When you came to faith in Christ, you were separated from the world. God has separated you for him, by him, to him. And you are now in Christ. So we're not going to be a part of this judgment here. Now, future believers of Matthew 24, verses 40 to 41 will join us as the community of the redeemed. Now, what does that say about God? Many things. For example, he hates sin, and he acts in holiness and injustice, but at the same time, he loves sinners, and he acts in kindness and in grace, and he allows people time and again to come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
Maybe your own life reflects that. Maybe you heard the gospel 10 times before you came to faith in Jesus Christ. It's the long-suffering of God. It's the forbearance of God. He's not willing that any should perish, we're told in the Bible. And that is why he raises people like you and me to go tell others about salvation in no other name but in Christ. So I hope you are in awe of our great Savior. According to the Gallup poll, only four people in ten believe that God intervenes on your behalf. Only 40% of people interviewed believe that God intervenes or answers prayer. Now let me, as we close, let me ask you this. How would you answer that question? If somebody called you and said, I'm from the Gallup Institute, do you believe that God answers prayer? How would you answer that? Well, here's how he answers that question. There are many verses, but I chose this one. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So the Bible answers that question. Does God intervene on our behalf? He cares for you, we're told here, which means that no matter what you're going through today, even studying terrible events of the end times, he cares for you now. He wants to give you renewed hope, and he wants you to trust in him. So my encouragement to all of us this morning is that we will ask God to renew our confidence in him, that he will help us to fix our eyes on him rather than in the world and in situation. He's got the whole thing under his control. Now, if he allows us in his infinite wisdom to go through some difficult times, the good news, you know what the good news is? We're not alone. We have a family to care for one another. And I can't think of a better way to spend moments or, or time of crisis than in the flock, in the family of God. So if you're not yet a believer in Christ, today's the day. Don't postpone any longer because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't mean to alarm you. The Bible alarms you. You need to come to faith in Christ today. Tomorrow might be too late. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.